Elton John wrote the words, he said, if there is a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? I, I think we've all been there. Sometimes you wonder where in the world God is and why it's taking him so long to act in some sort of a situation. And um, I think of uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, sermons that this is from 100 years ago or so. It's an old, old sermon. Um, there's some really, really great ones that have been preached uh, down through the years. But um, this is from a, written by a preacher by the name of Arthur Gossip. And the name of this sermon is this. It's when life tumbles in, what then? It was actually written shortly after the unexpected death of his wife. And it's based really upon a rather obscure text that comes out of the book of Job that talks about what happens to a person who can't walk in normal times when they have to run with horsemen. <laughs> what happens to a person who can't cross a river when it's at its regular stage and all of a sudden they discover it's at flood stage at that point in their life? When life tumbles in, what then? And in that sermon, he says, you people in the sunshine may believe in faith, but we in the shadows must believe because we don't have anything else. I'm pretty sure that the nation of Israel felt that way. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt that there were times when they found themselves wondering what in the world is going on. Where was God? Why was he silent? What was going on in their life that would cause God to be so remote, to be so removed? We watched them cross the river. As we've looked at this series here, we've saw them take over the territory. We watched them go through the period of the judges uh, that, uh, where they all wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, it wasn't, uh, we came to the story of Ruth. We were introduced to the fact that God is going to be faithful to his promise and we get introduced to the king. Well, at least the potential king, David. Last week we saw that David, in fact, was human just like you and me. And um, he struggled, he suffered just like us. And it wasn't long after David that, uh, that the kingdom of Israel was divided, just split in two. As the story goes, uh, Samuel... Uh, uh, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul as king. Saul doesn't do very well. And so God anoints David as king. David reigns for about 40 years. He had a troubling kind of reign where we see some things like we saw last week. His son, David's son, uh, Bathsheba's son, by the way, um, actually the son that he had through their their, uh, their bad relationship died, but then the next son that they had, the next son that uh, was, was Solomon, and he takes the throne, and he reigns for another 40 years. And it's at that point that Israel is really at its peak. During the reign of Solomon, it is just, it is a, they are the wealthiest nation in the world. They are the most powerful nation in the world. They are respected by everyone around them. There are people who, who come to Jerusalem just to see Solomon, and to hear his wisdom, and it is just the greatest time in the life of this kingdom. Well, Solomon then gets ready to pass over the throne to his son, Rehoboam. And that's 
Rehoboam is the logical person to take it. Rehoboam, however, he doesn't have a lot of common sense. Whatever Solomon had, he didn't seem to pass it on to his son. When it came time for Rehoboam to take over the kingdom, he wanted to know, what should I do? How should I reign? How, how will somehow these, how will, uh, will, what will allow these people to, to, to look at me and think, you know, that's a, that's a leader that I want to follow. And the response of his advisors was this. They said, let up on the taxes. Let up on the pressure. These people have been building buildings. They have been paying taxes. They've been doing all these things to build all these things for you and enhance your kingdom. It's time for them to get some relief. They need it. But instead of listening to those advisors, he went to some young friends and they said, no. <laughs> Put your thumb down on them just really hard. Make it even worse. And so what does Rehoboam do? He listens to them. That's what he did. And it split the kingdom right in two. The ten, ten northern tribes went with Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the two southern tribes stayed with Rehoboam, son of Solomon, and suddenly you have this history of north and south and, and Israel and Judah and king after king. And every king, as you read through the kings, the book of 1 Kings, is identified with either the north or the south. But they're also identified with King David. They either did the things that King David did or they didn't do the things that King David didn't do. Did I say that right? or they did the things that King David didn't do, right? But they were always evaluated in light of King David. The story that we're looking at today is really the story of, uh, of the worst of the bunch. His name, is, his name is Ahab. We've heard of this. I, I'm quite confident that you probably haven't heard a sermon most much on this text that I'm going to share. I think you think already you know what I'm going to be preaching on, but you, you don't. <laughs> Just telling you. This is Ahab, though. Ahab is introduced in 1 Kings chapter 16 and, verse, and, and chapter 17. This is really about 150 years or so, maybe 175 years after King David, after Solomon, into Israel's history uh, since King Saul. The, the kingdom is divided. There's north, there's south, there's uh, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And if you're, if you're a Jew looking back on your history, you're reading the story of 1 Kings and you're trying to figure out for yourself what in the world happened to the glory days of Israel. If you can read this text in that light, then it will help you understand what the author was trying to communicate. What in the world has happened to the glory days of Israel? He introduces us in, in verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 26. I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 16, to a fellow by the name of King Ahab. Let's look at that. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel, that's the northern tribe, and he reigned in Samaria, that's the capital city, over Israel 22 years. 
Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in, te- in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Not exactly the kind of legacy that you would want to leave. It's not the kind of evaluation that you would like to have written about you, that you did more evil than all of the kings before you, including Jeroboam, son of Nebat, because he was the worst until Ahab came along. But it's at that moment that we get, get introduced to our text in 1 Kings chapter 17. So I want to move to that story. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse number 1. It starts out really, I think this is fascinating. It says, Now Elisha the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. I I don't know if you noticed this or not, but this is the first time that you have ever seen Elijah. I mean, we we know who he is, sure. Sure, we know his name because we live on the other side of the story. But out of nowhere, all of a sudden, this guy just shows up. And he walks up to the king and he says, by the way, it's not going to rain for another, uh, for however long. It's not going to rain until until I tell you otherwise. And then we're going to watch him just disappear for about three and a half years. Now, Elijah has a really unusual name, by the way. If you really take that apart, it consists of two words, Eli, E-L-I, and Yah, J-A-H. You probably recognize at least one of those, if not both of those two words. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, or Elohim, the plural form of Eli, E-L-I, The first part of Elijah's name means my God. And then you have the Yah, J-A-H or Y-A-H. Should be familiar because we've spent some time talking about Yahweh. Or some translations call him Jehovah. J-A-H is is the abbreviated form for the name of God that was not allowed to be pronounced in Egypt or in, in, in Israel. Elijah's name literally means, my God is Yahweh. And 14 times in this short chapter, the name of God is going to actually show up in its most pristine form, Yahweh. It's going to show up in other forms as well, but 14 times Yahweh is going to be mentioned in this brief text. 14 times. Say, wow, that's neat. No rain. It's, it's just going to stop raining. Now, now, you may remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the presence of rain was an automatic sign in Israel. It was a sign that God was angry and somehow punishing people. 
Drought was a sign of God's anger. In fact, in a couple of places where it talks about the oncoming drought and the, the lack of rain, he uses this kind of language. He says, the sky will be like iron to you. No rain. But I don't want you to miss this connection, or you'll miss something, I think, that is really significant. The challenge here is from Baal. Uh, sometimes we say Baal. Baal happens to be the god of fertility and rain. And the Asherah pole that is raised up, she is the goddess of fertility, and you put that pole on the, on, the, on the mountaintop with prostitutes. And so here's this worshiper of Baal who believes that Baal controls the weather. And all of a sudden, Elijah comes along and he says, hey, by the way, unless I tell you otherwise, it's not going to rain. <laughs> you hear the challenge, right? Look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah Leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. And so he did what the Lord had told them. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, That phrase is repeated many times in the book of 1 Kings, well, in, in 1 Kings 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, in fact, it's one of the, mo one of the things that you notice in, in the reading of the Old Testament, especially within the prophetic books, the books of prophecy, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, the word of the Lord came to me saying, it came to in fact, it's repeated 242 times in the Old Testament, 225 times of which are places where God himself says, listen to me because I'm speaking. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, by the way, what I want you to do is I want you to go east. Well, that's east. East of the Jordan. Right? I want you to go east of the Jordan and I will take care of you. And it's like, that's nice. But I want you to think about this for a minute. East of the Jordan. East of the Jordan River. It's, if you're into geography, that, that, that means that he is in Gentile territory. East of the, of, of the Jordan. He, he has left Israel. We, we, we don't miss that because that is so critical. What this author is telling you is that, that the one who just spoke for God, Elijah, whose name is my God is God, this one who represents God in the scene, God has just left. He has abandoned Israel. He has gone east of the Jordan. And a raven is going to feed him, it says. <laughs> But this is my favorite part of the story, by the way. You know what a raven, raise your hand if you know what a raven is, right? We, we all know what ravens are. Those big black birds that they fly around and, and you know where you see them most of the time, right? Where? Highway 14, right? <laughs> you know what they're sitting on, don't you? The deer, car, the deer that you just hit the night before. 
And I, I'm sure that, like, like me, you see, I, I see lots of them, big black birds. They wait until the very last moment, right, before they get off the road when you're driving by because the roadkill, I guess, is so good. Now, let me just run that by you once more. Elijah, I want you to go east of the Jordan, drink from the brook, and the ravens are going to feed you. Are you getting the picture right? It's not an over ple overly pleasant picture, by the way. Roadkill Cafe. And the menu is whatever's out there. But boy, does it paint a picture. Unclean birds, unclean animals, dead carcasses, and God has left the territory. Well, sometime later, verse number 7, the brook dries up. Well, of course, right? It's famine. Um, there's no rain, hadn't rained for three and a half years, and of course the brook is going to dry up, probably a little bit every day. Uh, you can almost see Elijah, can't you? I mean, it's just, you can, you can almost see him going out there after a few weeks or a few months, however long it took, and he's beginning to think, man, uh, there's not much water. In fact, I can almost see him out there one morning, you know, he's finally pushing the sand back in, in, in order to get just a little bit of that water to surface. But I want you to look at verse number 7 in following. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. There it is, right? Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, what? Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, I, he called. And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have, and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman, for her family, for the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Zarephath. It's everyone's favorite vacation place, I'm sure. Uh, all right. You've kind of got a mental map. Well, maybe, I mean, I, I got a map actually up here I can show you a little bit here. But you know exactly where we're at. I just, Mediterranean Sea right over here, right? And you got Israel right in here, and running right straight back down through the middle of Israel is this is this is is the Jordan River. Now it's true. I told you that everything east of the, I I didn't mean to say everything east of the of, of the Jordan is going to be not Israel because remember right up in here there's there's some east of this Jordan here there's some territory there that does belong to Israel. But we're we're down in here that is not that's. What's the name of that territory that they, um, um, 
the the garrisons where all the evil was happening. That that's the, the but this is the this is where um, the New Testament talks about that. But anyway, Elijah is out outside of of Israel. He's east of the Jordan. He's in that Kareth uh, brook. It says on here that ravine area, and uh, he's drinking of the brook. And now he's going to go all the way up here, all the way across Israel and up into Zarephath. That's where he's going. Just happens to be Jezebel's hometown. Anybody know who Jezebel is? The wife of King Ahab. Elijah's going there again. He's out. He's outside of Israel, and he speaks to a. He, that up there in Zarephath, is a, it's, it's really not that far from where Elijah had that showdown on Mount, um, help me out somebody, Carmel. Carmel, thank you. It's really not that far from there, which Mount Carmel is somewhere down right over in here. Uh, Elijah is, this is where, where this is, but this is just outside of his, Israel. He speaks to a Gentile woman, and the Gentile woman says something, that is, it's, it's almost an identical phrase that was used by Rahab the harlot, when the spies came to Jericho a few years before, she says, as surely as the Lord God lives. I mean, here is this Gentile woman who, who's going to take care of Elijah. And again, we're outside the boundaries of Israel. We're being, you guys got that right. We're outside the boundary. Of, I've said it about five or six times here just to make sure that we got that right. Okay. He's being... We're, we're being taken care of by a widow here. Are you beginning to feel that this is all about God abandoning his people? Are we catching on to that? I mean, Elton John's song would have fit well in Israel in this day. Is there a God in heaven? What's he waiting for? Where is he? But did you notice something that happened in the first story that is beginning to happen in the second story. See, in the first story, in verse number two, God says, and in verse number five, Elijah does. And then in verse number four, God promises, and then in verse number six, God does what he promises. And the same thing occurs in this particular part of the story. Verse number eight, God says, and then in verse number 10, Elijah does. Verse number 14, God promises, and then verse number 16, God provides. And it's just like other stories. It's just like the, the, the story of, uh, I, I, I was thinking about this when I, I, I get these two stories mixed up. But remember Elisha, uh, the prophet Elisha and the woman who ran out of oil, and God just kept on filling all those jugs, jugs after jugs after jug after jug with oil. And in fact, it, it just becomes such a fascinating story that Jesus even uses this story here uh, use it in the New Testament when he preaches in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Everybody's all excited until he says, oh, and by the way, God is going to use Gentiles. And then they want to throw him over a cliff. But you know what story he refers to, right? The problem with you people is you're just like those people back there in our history. But what you didn't understand was that God used a Gentile widow to take care of Elijah. That's powerful. Well, there's one more move that is made in this story here. Verse number 17. 
Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. This is this woman in Zarephath. He grew worse, he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? See, if you are an ill Israelite, that is exactly what you're thinking. God, what have you done? Did, did you just want to punish us somehow? It's not the first time that you've heard that. There, there aren't five, they, they aren't even five minutes on the other side of the Red Sea, and what you hear them say is, Oh, God of Israel, what have you done? We should have stayed back in Egypt, right? It's what you hear in Isaiah chapter 40, just before the captivity. Oh God, where are you? What have you done to us? And here she is voicing Israel, Israel's words, speaking for a whole nation. God, where are you? Did you just bring us out here and put us in this promised land so you could turn around and abandon us and leave us? Verse 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord. I, I always think that's an odd picture. But he says, O oh Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. And what is so fascinating is her response. And it is so interesting that the, the writer decided to put it at the very end of this story. Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Wow. The word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord is true. How did she know that? How, how did she know that the word of the Lord was true? It, it wasn't because of all the evidence, right? I mean, even though there's just a wealth of evidence that the, Lord, the word of the Lord is actually true. By the way, we'll be looking at some of that next year, next week. But the point of the matter, yes, you can trust your Bible. There's evidence for that. There's, there's, the, there's, there's some reasonable evidence for the, the, the reliability of God's word. But that's not how she knew. She knew because of her experience. She experienced God's faithfulness. He said, he said to her, you feed Elijah, I'll feed you. And he did, and she did, and he did. And she watched God raise her son from the dead. She saw God in action because she trusted him. She tried him. What, what do you think that the readers of this book learned? Where was God and why was Israel divided? And why were they having so much trouble? 
Well, I'll tell you why. Because they disobeyed God's word. The law had already spoken. If you obey me instead of the gods, I will be faithful to you. If you obey the gods, if you worship Baal, if you turn, your, if you turn yourself to idols, I will send famine. I will send drought. The word of the Lord is true. See, God keeps his word. So what do you and I learn from this story? God keeps his word. God keeps his word. That, that's, that's the story. I mean, that's the whole story, isn't it? I mean, creation, fall, Christ, uh, creation, fall, uh, promise, Christ, new creation. What's God doing in all of that? Keeping his word. So what's the application of this story, of your story? God keeps his word. You can trust him. But you need to notice this in the story. When God spoke, people responded, and God was faithful. When God spoke, people responded, and God was faithful. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he did. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he did. The word of the Lord came to the woman, and she did. Because the word of the Lord is true, and you can trust it. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand together, too. Father, I am struck by how powerful your word is. And just to reiterate this morning that the fact that your word, the words that you have written are true. They're reliable. They're trustworthy. They're safe. They're... They're worth following. I can't help but think that sometimes some of the things that, that we see around us are because we haven't trusted in your word. Your word. We see battles all around us and, and uh, we worry why the taking of your word out of all of our public buildings is creating chaos. And yet I'm less concerned about that than I am about our lives as a church and as, a, as individuals. And Father, I pray that you give us, especially as we celebrate fathers today, but I pray that you give every single one of us the ability, the courage, the drive, the desire to not only trust in your word, but to obey it to listen to it, to follow it, and to set an example for a world around us who does not know your word. Help us to show those around us that your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen.